0: Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. No, not today. Did you listen to the Bible reading this morning? There's blood running in the streets of Bethlehem. And mothers weeping for their dead children. Where does this fit into the Christmas story? It does fit. It definitely fits. Christmas, the incarnation of God into the world to become a human, to save humans from our sins, has many dimensions, as we will see today. But first, let's review where we've been. This is the fourth of four Advent weeks. The first week was Jesus, the awaited King. We're talking about the kingship of Jesus over all the universe, Week one, he was the awaited king, prophesied in the entire Old Testament as the New Testament era waited to begin. Week two was the arrived king. God finally came as a human to save humans. In week three, the adored king. Last week, the magi from the East showed up to show us that Jesus is the king for all kinds of people, for all people, for everyone. But today, there's crying and loud weeping bloodshed and murder of innocence, mayhem in that little town of Bethlehem. What happened? Well, last Sunday we read this in Matthew 2. We're going through the first two chapters in Matthew, and if you haven't opened your Bibles yet, I encourage you to. Matthew chapter 2, we're starting in verse 13, today where we picked off from last week. Yeah, if you need a bulletin, sermon notes, Chris is ready to pass those out. Just raise your hand. I find those helpful, and he'll give you one. Last Sunday, we read this in the first part of Matthew 2. When Herod heard the Magi looking to worship this new king, he was troubled, and he schemed to kill him. King Herod, in power, hears rumors of a new king, and he wants to kill him. Because to him... He dreaded the news of a new king. Today we look at King Jesus as the dreaded king, as you'll see the sermon title. Dreaded by government leaders, yes. And we'll look today at what the Bible says about government overreach and tyranny. We'll look at that today, but with a twist. We'll be deep in the scriptures today, looking at the entire Bible. So prepare your hearts. Matthew writes again his gospel to a mostly Jewish audience, and so to him, Jesus' fulfillment of all the hundreds of prophecies in the Old Testament that the Jews knew very well, they were very important. And so we're going to be looking at fulfilled prophecy. In fact, we're, as you can, if you're looking at your sermon notes, you see that today's message is framed around the three different fulfillments in this text. Uh, Of Jesus of the Old Testament. We see God directing Joseph by angel or dream three times and then we see three major Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Joseph, Mary, and Jesus' adventures today. So let's look at the first one. Fulfilled prophecy number one, King Jesus starts the new exodus. We're going to consider the whole Bible today being fulfilled in Jesus. So Exodus might sound familiar to many of you. We spent the first seven months of this year going verse by verse through the book of Exodus, and that was a great journey. We had a very good time. We learned so much, and so this will be familiar territory to some of us. So we left off last week in the Christmas story with the Magi, the wise men from the east, being warned to avoid King Herod when they went back home Because Herod was threatened and angry about their mention of this other king who was born nearby. So God warned them in verse 12, do not go back to Jerusalem. So if you're looking at your Bible, you see verse 12, they went home in another direction. And now we begin verse 13 at that exact moment. There's no time gap now between verse 12. The, The Magi are just leaving and Joseph and Mary are just going to bed. Verse 13 is where we pick up verses 13 through 15. Follow along with me. Now, when they, that's the Magi, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord that night appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, get up out of bed. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose. He did. And took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there for quite some time until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill the first prophecy for today. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now let's piece all this together, the whole word of God. We will see as we study the life of Christ that God continually orchestrates events throughout Jesus' life in order to protect him until he can fulfill all his purposes, right? On that night of Passover when he died on the cross. And here he has to protect baby Jesus several times so that the spiritual enemies and the human enemies couldn't keep him from accomplishing what he was there to do for us, why he came at Christmas. The prophecy was, out of Egypt I called my son. Matthew is quoting from the prophet Hosea, who was writing about events from 3,400 years before Jesus' birth back in Egypt in the Exodus, second chapter, second book of the Bible, when God delivered his people from the tyranny of Egypt, from the slavery that they suffered in Egypt. And you remember that in Exodus, God used 10 powerful plagues to work, manifest his glory, and to work in the heart of Pharaoh and the Egyptians so that they will let God's people go, the first nine plagues were kind of all just preparing for the tenth, the Passover, when God struck down the firstborn sons in Egypt, except those houses of his people, his people who he instructed to paint with blood over their door, crossbeam, and posts, giving a picture thousands of years ahead, or 1400 years ahead, of Jesus the Messiah who would come and die on the cross. For our salvation. Again, Jesus fulfilled the entire Old Testament. This was just one little part. But it was God's deliverance of Israel then out of Egypt that gave a picture of God's ultimate deliverance of all people from sin through Jesus Christ. Everything was a foreshadow of Christ. And Matthew identifies here is where Jesus is starting the new Exodus. As a baby, he's starting the new Exodus out of slavery. Jesus sets us free from the slavery of sin completely. That's what his little life, his little baby, he's going to grow up and become the king of all kings. The Christmas story is just the beginning of all of this. Now, in light of all this background, Matthew is helping us see that when Joseph and his, his family, Mary and, and Jesus, when they run from Herod to flee Egypt, Jesus is starting this new exodus. He's fulfilling what the entire book of Exodus pictured. God in the Old Testament saved his people by bringing miraculous deliverance, and now God saves all people who will come to him by bringing his Messiah from Egypt. God smiles and says, Watch how I unfold this whole plan of mine for the universe, a plan in which you and I are a part. Praise God. Amen. Amen. Matthew's recognizing the supremacy of King Jesus in all the universe, and I hope that that you all will as well. All right, we're diving into scriptures, and we're just getting started. Matthew's just getting started today. Jesus is the king who started the new exodus of our deliverance. Next, as the story moves, we see fulfilled prophecy number two. King Jesus assures hope in all trouble. Life is filled with trouble. King Jesus is assuring you hope today. We're going to spend a lot of time on this point today. Matthew continues both telling the Christmas story and proclaiming prophecy fulfilled in King Jesus, and in this point, he's going to give us hope in the face of all trouble. Let's look at the terrible events of verses 16 through 18 and what God has to say about tyranny. Verses 16 through 18, then Herod when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Remember, he found out when the wise men saw their star and he said, okay, all the babies under two, we're going to kill them all. Verse 17, then was fulfilled. Here's the prophecy that was fulfilled in this. Well, it was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. O little town of Bethlehem was lying still, but then it became, O, be- o little town of Bethlehem, your streets are filled with blood, screaming, and tears. Here's why this trouble. Herod, the king of the Jews, is attempting what human powers always do. Human powers, the pride of our flesh, and emboldened and spurred on by the spiritual powers and the principalities and forces of evil that are in the world. He's trying to consolidate his own power and eliminate rivals. This is what we do, to amass more power for himself and remove anything that stands in his way the human experience. Now Matthew proclaims the fulfillment of the prophecy of, from Jeremiah 31. That's a key chapter in the Bible. It has the theme, the Lord turns sadness into joy. Now think what's happening back when Jeremiah wrote. Jeremiah was reflecting on the time when Babylon totally leveled Israel and brought them into captivity, the Babylonian captivity. Cities and homes were destroyed, murdered communities, and at Ramah, specifically, family members who survived were separated and sold or given to different caravans and spread out all over the world, or all over the known world, the empire. Could you just imagine the tears and the anguish of all the murder and destroying of the houses and the cities, and then the survivors that are left are separated and sent off to never see each other again? The tears and the screaming and the loud weeping and the sadness that was inconsolable, imagine if that happened to your community, to your family and friends. Just imagine the unimaginable anguish that would be. Matthew says this is what was happening in Bethlehem, the weeping over the senseless deaths of babies at the hands of Herod. But there's a deeper fulfillment happening here. Jeremiah 31, as if you read the whole chapter of Jeremiah 31, it gives a promise that God would turn Israel's sadness into joy. And it says when and how. Jeremiah 31 is also where we get the new covenant. Right in the middle of the old covenant, the Old Testament, he gives this beautiful picture of what's to come through the Messiah, the new covenant. Which later, Jesus at the Last Supper says, this is the new covenant. The new relationship between God and humans, his church, through Jesus' blood. And every time we have communion, we say that verse. Listen to this. Matthew is telling us that King Jesus turns trouble into joy because he's the only good king. He will turn your trouble into joy in an even fuller sense for all peoples, for eternal hope, through salvation, complete salvation, that he is going to offer in his death on the cross and his resurrection to take away all of our sin and to give us a brand new identity. Look again at point two's title here. King Jesus assures hope in trouble. In all trouble, King Jesus, you want to have as your king. Because this world is filled with trouble. Let's consider the trouble. Where does trouble come from? And why is Jesus the dreaded king to the troublemakers? A minute ago I said that Herod, king of the Jews, is attempting to do what humans do, consolidate our power and eliminate rivals, threats against our power. Anything that stands in the way. That's what we naturally do. So let's consider some biblical teaching on this that will help make sense of this crazy world in which we live. And we need to know this, Christ's followers, followers of Christ Jesus the King. You see in your notes, if you're looking at those, a section called God's five jurisdictions of authority. We need to know this. It makes sense of the trouble in our world and how we Christians operate in it. God has laid out in his word clearly five jurisdictions of authority in the world so that the world operates in order and thriving and health. We live in a moment where in this country we are experiencing government overreach and and tyranny like this country has never seen before in its history. We're all pretty much aware of that. Under almost every presidency in the last hundred years, the government has grown by leaps and bounds until now it's become so massive that we who live in this generation just automatically kind of assume that the government belongs in all of the branches and, and things that it's become involved in or overtaken. What should we as Christians think about this? What does the Bible say about authority and jurisdiction? Well, this is obviously a massive topic we could talk for hours and hours about. So I'm going to say right on subject of why tyrants dread King Jesus. We begin with the fundamental truth. This is where we have to begin. The fundamental truth that first of all all authority is God's. All authority is God's. He's the creator. This is his world. He's in sovereign control of it. Now, who did God give the authority to? All authority to first. We have to know this. First, the Father gave all authority to King Jesus. It's the beginning of the great commission. We have Matthew 28:19 on the board here. Always will, always have. It's the mission of every church, of every Christian. But right before this, verse 18 says, All authority, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and earth is given to me. And now he's giving that authority to us spiritually to do this mission in the world, to proclaim salvation from him to all nations for all time until everybody hears. So Jesus gave his spiritual authority to us to make disciples, to bring the nations to him for salvation now from there god is a god of means he works out his eternal purposes and you notice he doesn't just do it all himself he works out his eternal purposes through providence in in the activities of all the world the physical world and the spiritual world the works of all of his creation they we all do our part so he has further delegated his authority the authority that he has he has delegated that authority And the responsibility that he has, he's given it to us, to five different institutions, each with their own jurisdiction of authority and responsibility in the world. Those five are, I'm going to say them and then we'll look at them each, the family, the church, the civil government, the individual, and the employer. And the Bible lays out exactly what these authority structures should be and why, and where the overreaches occur, and where the breakdowns occur and why. So, I'll define the five jurisdictions and then we'll talk a little bit more about them. First is the family. The family is given authority by God. They are given authority by God to do some very important things to establish the lordship of Christ in the home, to be fruitful and multiply, given the authority to educate their children, to raise children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord and to pass on faith to future generations. Those belong to the family, no one else. The church is number two. Jesus gave the church the keys to the kingdom, Matthew 16, he says. Given authority to preach the word, to gather for corporate worship, to edify and equip believers, to observe the ordinances, To warn against false beliefs, and to discipline members who are walking contrary to godliness. This is the authority and the jurisdiction of the church. Three is the civil government. And God has given authority to the government, He calls it the sword, to protect the life of its citizens, to appoint righteous rulers to judge civil crimes, to punish evildoers, and to approve the good. Number four, he gives authority to the individual. God has given authority to the individual, you and me, to maintain our own mind and body under the authority of God. Nobody else tells us what to do with our own bodies. Number five is the employer, and that is God-given authority to transact business and employ people according to the ethical commands of God. And there we have a healthy, functioning society of thriving. Consider this example that that shows how each is, is separate, but each is interdependent with each other. And we have to live in interdependence, yet separate, of all five of those jurisdictions. Here's a good example to help show that. Let's say that Johnny, a 15-year-old member of the church, I don't think we have any 15-year-olds named Johnny. Okay, I'm safe with that one. Okay, Okay. hypothetical. Steals a computer from his workplace and is caught. Okay, the civil government will deal with the criminal aspect of the sin. His father and mother must decide how they will deal with their son's sin. Now the church or even the government can make recommendations, but what actions they take are ultimately the parent's jurisdiction. The elders must now decide if he should be put under church discipline or maybe some form of admonishment, and their decision is related to church fellowship, the health of the church. Johnny's jurisdiction of his own life is to be resolved to become an honorable and mature man, and his employer decides on the repercussions and guidance that they will enact on him as an employee. See how all this works together? Much trouble comes from any of these neglecting their jurisdiction, and much trouble comes from any of these usurping and overreaching into the other's jurisdiction. That leads to tyranny. Tyranny. What is tyranny? Tyranny is an unrestrained overreach of power, and it's no small issue. Tyranny strikes at the heart of God's authority. It rejects God. It unravels the order that God established for the world, and it destroys the liberty that God has granted each to each of them. So we Christ followers, we want to love our neighbor. Well, fighting tyranny is loving your neighbor. Now, with that in mind, we see how Herod is a picture of Jesus, the dreaded king. Herod is filled with rage at the thought that there would be somebody invading his authority, that he wants to be absolute over all the jurisdictions. And so filled with that rage, he gives the edict to kill all the boys in Bethlehem. It's a clear case of government tyranny. Now, governments in all of human history have sought, like Herod, to consolidate their power and eliminate rivals. America's government started small and in line with God's given jurisdiction of authority. But again, in the past 230 years, has become so massive now that now, in the worst case, people not only look to the government now like they never did 100 years ago, in this country, to solve all of our problems, to f- provide all of our needs. And worse, people in mass are worshiping the government, putting their faith and trust in the government, depending on the government as little g God rather than ever looking toward big g God. Now, all governments do this? Yes. For that, I go to scripture here's a meme I saw this week. I was like, oh, here we go. If the one who reads the newspaper knows what's happening in the world, the one who reads the Bible knows why. Let's look to the Bible. The first government recorded in history in the Bible sets this pattern. That's the Tower of Babel. So we're going to go, um, there's this big spectrum here from Genesis to Revelation. And in case you didn't know, I've been preaching this the last couple of years from time to time. The Bible's an old book, but it's not finished. Genesis Revelation, we're about here somewhere. It's very much still going on. God's story is our story. Our story is is God's unfolding plan of redemption and story of the universe. But here in Genesis chapter 11, we have the first recorded government at the Tower of Babel. And what did they do? In their hearts, they wanted to build this tower. It wasn't about the, the, the height of the tower. It was about amassing central power so that they were autonomous from God. They didn't need God. The leaders wanted that power for themselves and the citizens didn't want God either they said we want the government to take care of all all of our needs and what did God do to that government he crushed the tower spread the people scattered the people and confused their languages he said if I don't stop them now they'll never turn back their hearts to me and my authority it'll never stop and so he did Now, flash forward to the final government in human history, which hasn't happened yet. We're looking in prophecy now, in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 17 through 19, Jesus is showing John this revelation, what the whole book of Revelation is, Jesus' revelation to John. And in this part of it, in chapter 17 through 19, Jesus is showing John all the past and future governments, and he's showing that they're all intoxicated by the great prostitute of Babylon. Babylon all warring in rebellion against King Jesus. And the great prostitute of Babylon is the spirit of seductive culture engaged in deception and amassing power and in the destruction of God's people. Revelation says that all governments fall into this and accordingly they see God's followers, that's us, who pose a threat to their agendas as the enemy. Let's look at some of this text in Revelation 17. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns representing the nations. And I saw the woman, drunk with the, with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, the great prostitute of Babylon, the spirit of the age, which is propped up by the physical forces of anti-Christian government, seducing citizens to trust in them and warring against God's people in every generation. The book of Revelation, is this revelation, is not just about the past or the future. It's about all of the human experience. Tyrants always see true Christians as the enemy because we stand in their way of absolute power or any overreach. See how Jesus is the dreaded king to the social norms of today that want everyone to live in fear Okay, when God says do not fear. We want to remove all differences that God has established between genders, and we say no, while simultaneously dividing everyone by skin color and by groups endlessly, when God says to be unified. We stand in the way. Plus, true Christians are not easily fooled by the propaganda, and we fight to bring health and unity into the world, and we proclaim King Jesus as King. And so, as these agendas have accelerated in our country in the last couple of years, very quickly, according to Open Doors, Christian persecution worldwide has gone up 70% in the last year around the globe. Things are accelerating. But, tyrants come and go. Babylons, they come and go. Jesus Christ's reign is forever. Forever that's where we're heading jesus will return to replace all governments with his kingdom look a little ahead in revelation 17 verse 14 they will make war on the lamb here's where it all ends and goes down that's jesus and the lamb will conquer them for he is lord of lords and king of kings and those with him are called and chosen and faithful so watch out We can be sure that the devil attacks people through the front door of government persecution. We can be sure brothers and sisters around the world have experienced that way more than we have. It's coming here. We can also be sure that the devil attacks God's people through the back door of seductive, idolatrous culture. And that we have experienced maybe more than anyone else in the world. But also be sure that the Lord will have his day in the end. We worship the right God, King Jesus, those of us who are found faithful to him. Now, in the case of Herod, it's just a fascinating thing that the, what he dreaded actually happened to be the actual King Jesus himself, who threatened his consolidation of power, and so he sought to eliminate his rival. Herod killing all the baby boys in Bethlehem and the surrounding area is simply a, a picture of what always happens. Countless rulers seeking to eliminate rivals. But here's the twist I mentioned earlier. Here's the twist. Government is not the only jurisdiction where King Jesus is dreaded. See, it's way too easy for churches just to talk about and us in our, in our private conversations to talk about the enemy's out there. We watch on all these news clips on our phones now. It's easy to just be worked up and triggered and angry about things happening out there. All five, all five jurisdictions dread King Jesus and King Jesus' rule. Including families, including churches, including us as individuals, the pride of our hearts Wants control, wants authority, and will work to eliminate rivals. And we dread the lordship of Jesus in our lives, naturally. But, as many of you know, once you release that, once you give that over and give lordship to Jesus, he releases you from all that. And his freedom and the power of King Jesus as your king, you stand in awe at how awesome that is. To have Jesus as your king. And so what do we need to do if Jesus is our king? What do we need to do? Based on these jurisdictions and authorities, you have them, and you interact with all five of them. Here's what we need to do. We need to no longer abdicate the authority and the jurisdiction that God has given us. Abdicate means I give this over. Okay? I don't want this responsibility. No, God has given you this role, this responsibility, and this authority and the mission that he's given you in your life, and you don't, and you need to not usurp to take over any other God-given authority and responsibility, but to respect that authority. So parents, you must parent, you must parent in the entire realm of the authority, the jurisdiction that God has given you, not giving it over to other people. Dads and moms, you each have your own roles, So not giving up your roles, hoping that the other would take it, and not trying to take over the other person's role. My wife, Sarah, pointed out that this week as we were looking at this text that Joseph was the one all three times that received the the dreams or the visits from the angels because he's the spiritual leader of the family, and he led. He led well. I know it it might be complicated in your house, and it might be ugly, so get the counseling and the mentorship that you need. And single-parent families, the church needs to help you carry both roles. That's part of what the church is here to do. And Jesus fulfills your companionship needs, singles as well. Now churches, every church leader is tempted to build their own kingdom, not Christ's kingdom. Every church leader is tempted to do that. It feels really good to have your own kingdom. Every church member is tempted to want a social club rather than a hospital that's messy or a mission post that's war. So churches become weak when King Jesus slides off the throne. And we see a lot of that these days too, don't we? Individuals, of course, are tempted with every form of godlessness and not studying scripture daily to see how we should live and fulfill our jurisdiction following King Jesus. Will you resolve today that Jesus is the full and unquestionable and undivided, undistracted king of your life? This is the Christmas story and it's full. And enjoy the sweetness and bold confidence in having Jesus as your king. No one can beat you. Well, after showing us that King Jesus assures us hope in trouble... Matthew's ready to move on and and conclude his telling of the Christmas story. And of course, he ends with an amazing quality about Messiah, King Jesus, coming to earth. Through fulfilled prophecy number three, King Jesus offers love to enemies. Isn't this just like Jesus? He's the king of all kings, has all authority, and yet he's filled with love. That's the name of his kingdom. As we study the historical details of the Christmas story, Matthew wants us to know, and Jesus wants us to know, that Jesus' righteous, all-powerful kingship is filled with love. Let's read how Matthew's account of the Christmas story ends, verses 19 through 23, but really focus on that last verse, where Matthew pulls into the story prophecy number three. Here's how Matthew's account concludes. So they're off in Egypt for an unknown number of years. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard... It's just some real look at history here. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judah in place of his father Herod, he was like, eh, that's even worse. He was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, that's the third dream, vision, angel visit, he was redirected once again. He withdrew to the district of Galilee. Now that was to fulfill prophecy as well. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Being called a Nazarene is being called a bad name. It's to be really disrespected. Nothing good comes out of Nazareth. And this is a fitting conclusion to this Christmas story. The king of the universe comes to save sinners, and from the start, he is defied and dreaded by the very sinners he came to save. The reality that needs our attention today is that we do the same thing. If we're honest, at the true core that sometimes takes over us is a lot like Herod. Instead of bowing in full surrender, I give you my life, Jesus. We're afraid of how Jesus is going to invade into our kingdom, our plans, our desires. I want to do this. I want this relationship, I want this respect, I want to spend my time and money on these things, I want to continue in this sin, I want to work and relax and play, not sacrifice and serve, and on and on. The reality is that in our minds and hearts, we all reject King Jesus from time to time, or all the time, or most of the time. And we dread what he might be calling us to do. But I'm saying don't. Embrace what he's calling you to do. Seek what he's calling you to do. He is the king. Remember who he is. The king who started the new exodus of your deliverance. The king to assure you hope in all trouble. doesn't matter what the trouble is. The king Jesus is our king bold confidence, total hope. And remember that he came even when we were his enemies to offer his love to us. He's good. So will you give up the hold and control that you think you have on your life and give it to him and see what he does with it? Accept his freedom, his redemption, his rescue, his salvation, his peace, his eternal life and closeness with him and with each other in his name. Pray that you'll do that today in the fullness of your heart. And now I say, Merry Christmas! Feliz Navidad! We have finished the Advent series, and it is Christmas week. And my prayer is that all of us in this church, and any visitors, that will all... Put King Jesus right at the place he deserves to be, the king of your life, the reason for your Christmas celebrations this week, on the throne of your life forever. Let's pray.